So God says to Noah when he walks off the ark, I'll make the same deal with you that I made with your great grandpa. I'll keep the world going. I'll keep the earth producing, the crops growing, the seasons turning. I will bless obedience and I will resist sin and wickedness. That's the deal. That's covenant 2.0. Promises are clarified in light of the new situation and obligations are reimposed and reassumed. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Promises are clarified and obligations are reimposed. As we talked about in the last episode, the flood represented a catastrophe and a new beginning. There was judgment, but also hope and the promise of a future. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. I hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 9. This is something of an unfortunate chapter division. Chapter 9 should probably begin back at chapter 8, verse 20, when Noah comes out of the ark and begins to worship the Lord, and the Lord responds by confirming his covenant with human beings. In verse 21, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God makes a promise here and undertakes an obligation. That's what a covenant is. Gordon Hugenberger defines a covenant this way. He says, a covenant in its normal sense is an elected, as opposed to natural, that means it's something you choose, relationship of obligation under oath. Bruce Walkie is even simpler. He says, covenant means a solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. So God promises here to provide a firm stage of history for the outworking of his redemptive purposes. He's very clear in making these promises that it isn't because man has learned his lesson that he will refrain from destroying the earth. On the contrary, it's because man hasn't yet learned his lesson that he must obligate himself not to destroy the earth. God is promising to give us time and to keep working with us. And that is the theme we see carried on now in chapter 9. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here we notice that God is acknowledging Noah as a sort of second Adam. He says to Noah what he once said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. So this is creation 2.0. This this is a reboot. The external environment has been thoroughly scrubbed. The bad influences have been entirely removed, and the opportunities and resources have have been renewed. Therefore, if all it took was a clean slate and a fresh start for human beings to get things going again, things should go swimmingly from this point forward. But of course, they don't, because we need far more than a clean slate and a fresh start. And we'll get to that later. Verse 2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, here we see some of the promised help of God. A covenant includes promises and obligations. God has told Noah what to do. Multiply and fill the earth. And now God tells him how he will help. He'll put the fear and dread of man into every uh, beast, and he will also give them animals for food. So thus far, we can note just a simple, uh, single obligation for human beings. They need to multiply and fill the earth. We can also note three promised helps from God. A stable environment, a non-competitive relationship with the animals, and a generous supply of food. So God seems to be saying, this is your planet, okay? I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to give it to another species. I gave it to Adam, and now I'm giving it to you. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Here we learn that human beings are still the vice regents of God over all creation. The image of God has been obscured and diminished by the fall, but it has not been lost. We are still ruling creatures. We are still exalted creatures. And therefore, God establishes a law of retributive justice against any man or beast who sheds the blood of a human being. Now, we should notice a few things here. First of all, we should notice that the Bible treats murder as a separate category of evil. The JPS Torah commentary notes here that unlike the law collections of the ancient Near East, the Bible never imposes the death penalty for crimes against the property of one's fellow. See, in the ancient world, the death penalty was used for almost every crime in most cultures. But in biblical cultures, it was reserved for capital crimes, by and large. We should also notice that the Bible puts this authority into the hands of human society corporately as opposed to individuals, meaning the Bible does not permit vigilante justice. The Bible does not permit you to kill your neighbor if he kills your brother or your mother or your wife or your child. The Bible gives that authority to the state. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, 1-4. Such an important passage. Let's be very clear here. Individual Christians should turn the other cheek and love their enemies and forgive those who wrong us. Absolutely. But the king does not bear the sword in vain. The job of the government is to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Old Testament and new. Human society corporately has a mandate for retributive justice. Not just corrective 
justice, not just re-education, but also, when necessary, retributive justice. That's in the Bible, Old Testament and New. Now we jump back into the text at verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, in Hebrew, there are two terms used in relation to the making, keeping, establishing, etc. of covenants. Sometimes the Bible speaks of cutting a covenant. We'll see that terminology later in the book of Genesis. But here, God speaks of establishing or upholding a covenant. Genesis 9.9 uses the Hebrew word kum, which has the sense of confirmation, and thus relates back to a previous covenant, the covenant of creation. God is saying here that the basic rules and system that applied in the original creation are still in effect. He's not nullifying those things, but he is adding to them in light of the new circumstances. So, for example, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, say here that when God says that he is confirming or upholding his covenant with Noah, he is saying that his commitment to his creation, the care of the creator to preserve, provide for, and rule over all that he has made, including the blessings and ordinances that he initiated through and with Adam and Eve and their family, are now to be with Noah and his descendants, close quote. So God says to Noah when he walks off the ark, I'll make the same deal with you that I made with your great-grandpa. I'll keep the world going. I'll keep the earth producing, the crops growing, the seasons turning. I will bless obedience and I will resist sin and wickedness. That's the deal. That's covenant 2.0. Promises are clarified in light of the new situation and obligations are reimposed and reassumed. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, the meaning of the specific symbol of the rainbow isn't explicitly defined in the story, but over the years, many people have suggested, and I think with merit, That it means to communicate that for now, God has laid down his bow, as it were. There is a truce. God is going to give people time. He's going to work with them and communicate with them and call them to himself. So we're living in a time of stability, truce, and invitation. That seems to be the general idea. Every time it rains and you see a rainbow, just remember that the warrior God is not dead, despite what you may have heard. But he has given us plenty of time 
to lay aside our sin and wickedness and seek peace and reconciliation through the means that he provides. We'll jump back into the text at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, of course, we need to notice the time lapse here. Obviously, this is years later. We don't know how many. Long enough for Noah to have a grown grandson and a mature vineyard. We also don't know exactly what happened in the tent. Obviously, Noah got drunk and passed out, but we can't be sure exactly what Ham did. The text seems to hint that it was something sexual, but in typical biblical fashion, the story is light on details. The fact that when Noah wakes up, he curses Ham's seed rather than Ham himself suggests that it was a a sexual encounter of some kind, but we probably don't need to know much more than that. What we know is that Ham had no shame and, in fact, thought his brothers might like to know about it. Maybe they'd even like to do whatever he did. But thankfully, they were better men than him. The text goes on to say, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Again, we know it, we, we notice here that Noah cursed Ham's seed, his son Canaan, rather than Ham himself. And in fact, in ancient history and in the story of the Bible, the Canaanites became infamous for homosexuality. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, two Canaanite cities, seems to be given as the fulfillment or acting out of this curse. The JPS uh, Torah commentary puts it this way, central to the events described are the fundamental biblical teachings that human history is under the continual direction of God and that the fate of peoples is inseparably bound up with their moral state, close quote. So that's a good word. That's a good reminder. God is sovereign. He lifts up some. He prospers some. He throws down and thwarts others. He stirs up the seas of the peoples in order to further his redemptive purposes. And yet, he also holds peoples and nations responsible for their moral conduct. God is sovereign, and we are responsible moral agents. Those two truths can be found side by side on just about every page of the Bible. Verse 28 goes on to say, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And he died. See, that's a reminder that while Noah is a sort of second Adam, and while this is a sort of creation 2.0, it's not exactly like the first creation because we are still living after the fall and under the curse. Therefore, we die. 
We live, we work, we have children, we worship, we sin. Some of our kids do well, some disappoint us. We have triumphs and failures, happiness and sorrow, and then we die. Such is life on the other side of the fall. Because even with a clean slate, even with a fresh start, we still have sin in our hearts. But thanks be to God, we are not in this on our own. God is wrestling with us. He won't just wipe us out. He's put down the bow. He's being patient with us, even in our sin. He's given us time, and he's calling us home. This isn't the end. It's just the long in-between. Thanks be to God. Now, Pastor Paul, we are going to continue on with chapter 10 today. Is that correct? Yes. We originally developed this program to parallel the daily readings in the RMM Bible reading plan. So can you tell us what that is, just in case people don't know, or in case they'd like to get on board with it? Absolutely. The RMM Bible reading plan is named after Robert Murray McChain. That's where you get the RMM from. It's probably the most widely used of all the Bible reading plans out there. It's the one D.A. Carson uses It's the one that John Stott used for most of his adult life, Uh, J. Alec Machir, others that you could think of. It's your typical read through the Bible in a year plan, although its main distinctive is that it takes you through the New Testament and Psalms twice and the Old Testament once. So a user of the plan would see, I think, four columns of Bible readings each day from four different parts of the Bible. And if they read those every day, They would go through the whole Bible once and through the New Testament and the Psalms twice every calendar year. Yes, exactly. And so we started the End of the Word Bible reading program to help people achieve that very admirable goal of reading through the Bible in a year. And generally speaking, the plan assumes four chapters a day. But occasionally, when there is a shorter passage or a more difficult passage, like a genealogy or something like that, it will pair that with either the chapter before or the chapter after, meaning that on some days you'll end up reading five chapters a day. And therefore, some of our chapter episodes are a little shorter because they were released alongside of another chapter. Now, if you wanted to look into this further, into the RMM Bible reading plan, all you have to do, go to intotheword.ca and click the link that's right there on the front page of the website. Let's head into chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Jatheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dorinim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Now, of course, We should just stop here and make sure we understand that the the genealogy we're reading will take us past the events of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. This table of nations, as it is sometimes called, stretches from the time of Noah all the way to Abraham. So it goes well past the Tower of Babel, which is why it mentions here separate languages. We should also probably point out that there are 70 nations listed in this genealogy, 72 if you use the LXX, the Septuagint version of the story. And that seems to have become a symbolic number for the totality of the nations on the earth. 
Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there are only 72 nations on the earth. I'm just saying that from this story, the number 70 and 72, depending on whether you read it in Hebrew or Greek, became a sort of symbolic way of referring to the totality of humanity. So, for example, Jesus has his inner circle of 12 disciples, which must in some way relate to the 12 tribes of Israel. But then we're told that he had this wider circle of 70, or is it 72 disciples, that he sends out in Luke 10. That has to be a way of saying symbolically that the message of Jesus is for the Jews first, but also and ultimately for all the people of the earth. Now, lastly, in terms of this group, most of the names uh, that we just read are associated with peoples to the north and to the west of the promised land, which is sort of the frame of reference. We jump back into the text at verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtica. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Calneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That's the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lacia. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. The people listed in these verses generally lived in the Middle East and then also down south into Africa. The sons of Canaan, listed in verses 15 to 20, are the folks that Israel will eventually be called upon to displace from the promised land when God brings them up out of Egypt. Now, this is certainly intended to recall the curse of Noah upon Canaan. But again, it will be helpful to note that it isn't as though these future Canaanites will be punished for the sin of their great-great-grandfather. In fact, God delays the exodus and the conquest until the sin of these actual people has reached full maturity. We'll hear about that later. Meaning that at the end of the day, they are punished for who they chose to become. Verse 21 tells the story of Shem, who will become the carrier of the line of promise. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Now, Eber is mentioned at the head of the list here, and then later when he actually comes up in the line, because it is from him that the family of Abraham will descend. We are being told that Shem contains the line of promise. That is intended to get our attention. Verse 22 goes on now to give the list in order. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. 
To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shilaf, Hazar Maveth, Jera, Hadorim, Uzal, Digla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, Moses doesn't detail here the line of Peleg because it gets its own special genealogy in chapter 11. It is the line of Peleg, son of Eber, that produces the family of Abraham. Verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that chapters 1 to 11 tell us the story of God and the world. And then chapters 12 to 50 tell us the story of God and the family of Abraham. Well, if that is true, and I believe it is, then chapters 10 and 11 function as the hinge and transition between those stories. Out of the world... God picks a family with whom to work so as to bring about his great and glorious plan of redemption. God has a purpose for the peace that he established in chapter 9. The purpose is redemption, and the vehicle is the family of Abraham. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, I would hazard a guess that this might have been the very first time that a chapter-long genealogy has been read and commented upon on the radio. Most people, truth be told, skip through these chapters, right? And let's be honest. But we probably shouldn't do that, should we? Well, again, according to the Apostle Paul and Peter, these are our family stories. These are our grandparents and great uncles and great aunts in the faith. And so whether or not we try to read all the names out loud, this is our story, and therefore it is important. Chapters like this remind us that God does his miraculous work through very ordinary people. This is not a human hall of fame. This is regular people. And that in itself is part of the story. Remember, we read the Bible to learn about God, to learn about us, and to learn about how God has saved us through the life and death of Jesus Christ. And these people are part of that story. Jesus came into the world through a human family, through a line of real people, men and women. And chapters 10 and 11 in the book of Genesis function as a hinge to get us from the flood to the family of Abraham, which becomes the vehicle of promise. So this is not dead space This is family history. All right. I promise I'll stop skipping over all those genealogies in the Bible. You've convinced me, and I'm sure you've convinced a few of our listeners as well. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also find that RMM Bible Reading Plan link on the front page as well. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.